but this is the drum that we've been beating and actually been delivering on for the past two years. So having this historical IPO rate, having it on chain and actually bootstrapping this yield curve in DeFi, uh, I think that the protocol, its mission is really solidified by seeing these other players come in and, and you know, not only validate it, but uh, try to enter as competition. And then also those different markets can be rate inputs for, you know, the IPOR one month rate, the IPOR three month rate, you know, essentially bootstrapping this, this, uh, this yield curve, not only by the accrued IPOR, but by the fixed income markets, by the futures, by the bond stripping markets. Uh, and so we're really seeing a really interesting evolution of the moving pieces inside the rates market, even though DeFi credit activity is at a very low state. So you see a lot of innovation on the space. And, you know, I think that we're very well at the forefront to capture, uh, to capitalize on this. And there's a lot of interest moving into this because they're actually realizing, you know, the power of the space. Style podcast. Great, and we're live. Hey guys, welcome to today's XDAO podcast. We have the founders of iPOR with us today, and I'm joined by my co host Cerberus. Hey everyone. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. Hello, guys. Hey, Brucey. Hey, Dimi. Hey, Darren. How are you guys doing? I've heard that you you guys just uh, got back from Token Twenty Four Nine. Maybe you can share some some insights about the conference and also are we Web Three or Web Two Point Five right now? Because I've heard that we're going more to a Web Two landscape uh, nowadays. Uh, okay, that's interesting. Well, it was it was a it was a quaint meeting of minds with us and uh, ten thousand of our closest friends. Uh, so first of all, it was pretty uh i mean the scale was pretty epic uh, i'd been there last year and i think this was at least one 1.5 x uh the only other one that i'd been to that was actually larger was uh actually consensus in austin uh, i think that was uh, the 2021 version right and this was coming off right off of the uh or sorry actually last year 2022 so coming right off of the the bull market so it really doesn't feel like a bear market uh, for the Web 2.5 or Web 3, that's an interesting question. Um, you had a huge presence, of course, by the centralized exchanges. Uh, you had a lot of people there, uh, you know, talking about base, talking about real world assets. And so real world assets may be a very kind of Web 2.5 phenomenon where you're taking kind of the tokenization and the, uh, the asset that doesn't live fully on chain. Um, but yeah, I didn't. Did you hear about like Web 2.0 versus Web 2.5? Actually, not familiar with the uh, contextualization. I mean, people are not speaking about it precisely, but you can definitely see that you know uh, protocols that want to run like more scalable operations, they want to provide like better pricing, faster settlement, and like obviously like using real world assets already kind of is like uh, puts us a little bit like uh, away from like the pure you know. Web3, on everything is only smart contracts on chain and so on. But I think that at token 2049, where you can see that is basically half of, I would say like half of the conference was, was about like infrastructure, uh, ZK rollups uh, and uh, restaking and, and so on, which is like very Web3. But you also have to realize that certain certain solutions like things like okay decentralizing sync sequencers and so on in crypto those are like extremely uh hard problems to tackle uh and right now i think that majority of the protocols realize that yeah we can work in that direction but we cannot stand there and down that hill that unless we manage to to provide like a fully decentralized solution uh we are not just going to be doing anything and i guess like layer zero uh, basically announcing just like a couple of couple of days after the conference that you know 
they are moving with Google Cloud as their Oracle provider uh, rather than, you know, uh, sticking with, with Chainlink. I wouldn't say that this is a hit on Chainlink, but it's, it just shows that, you know, infrastructure projects that already, like, have, you know, very big teams, a lot of funding and the capabilities to scale their operations to like millions, tens of millions of people. They are not going to be waiting until, you know, we figure out how to how to do things flawlessly in, in pure like a, a Web3 way. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And we, we were just talking about this. So we, we had a team meeting for Deus Ex DAO and uh you know, uh, one of our members, Trading Alpinist, was also at the conference, and we kind of reflected on, okay, well, how was this year different versus last year? Uh, and many things have changed. You know, the rate environment, kind of crypto prices generally, but there still were very many builders and people solving problems. Um, but, but to to your point, Demi, I feel like for the end user, you know, especially somebody who, who's not institutional. They don't care if it's Google Cloud or Chainlink. Most people won't, right? It's just like, can you can you give them a user experience that works? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I feel like sometimes we can get so down the rabbit hole as kind of deep insiders, we forget that. Yeah, look at Frentech, look at Telegram, Tom. Uh, you know, it's already like, as of recording, it's already like in top 10 of market capitalization of, in, in, of crypto. So, I mean, pe people just really want like, cheap, scalable products that, that they can use, that they can speculate on, that they can play around. So definitely. So now that we're talking about, you know, good products that are scalable and people can play around and have an actual DeFi usage, uh, we're usually doing like some kind of introduction in the beginning, but with this podcast, given that you guys are second time guests here, we can refer people to watch our first podcast with you. And I, I propose to get straight into it. And uh, one of the big updates that uh, you guys have is the introduction of the Asset Liability Manager. Can you share this with us? What is it? Uh, why the visualization of it is important? And how does iPORS approach differ from past approaches of other ALMs in order to avoid, you know, similar pitfalls as we've seen with uh, the biggest uh, downfalls in, in crypto like Celsius or certain CD5 pro uh, protocols. Yeah, I mean, uh, so with the, what's called the asset management screener or maybe like a, a visual on a visualization on asset liability management is actually in, in our view, it's nothing special. It's something that should be really actually standard in DeFi. Uh, so the big question, you know, at any point should be, you know, where is my money? What's it earning? And what's my what's my counterparty risk? All right. So if you go on the asset management screener that, that we built, it's, it's really just uh, it's a UI on chain. Right. So you can see how much money is deposited into the liquidity pool. Uh, how much of it is in reserve to be paid out right now? What's the collateral that's in reserve? And where are those assets actually being deployed? And, you know, the asset management of the IPOR is going out to the, the constituents of the IPOR rate, so Aave and Compound B2. Uh, we actually have live right now a vote, actually the first uh, DAO uh, snapshot vote uh, about expansion of the asset management and update of the IPOR index. And I think within the first hour, it reached quorum. Uh, last I checked, it was over a 700k vo um, power IPOR. The quorum is at, at 200,000. So it's nice, nice, very quick turnout for kind of the first uh, vote. Uh, that aside, you know, the asset management in IPOR, IPOR is meant to be the risk-free rate, right? And that is um, categorized by this over collateralization, or really what uh, you know the the best mechanism we have to uh to cut risk uh, on counterparties so you can see that money goes in to the protocol you can see where it's yielding from and you can see uh you know exactly what's the counterparty risk that's sitting uh you know between the assets in the protocol and the in protocols that it deploys capital in uh and if we go back to let's say some collapses at the end of last year uh, or the year before with something like Celsius, with something like FTX, with something like Three Arrows, 
the question is, you know, where in the machine is the money? Where are the where are the assets? Where are the liabilities? And actually, even more important than that is what's the duration risk and what's the duration mismatch? Uh, and so this is something that we can do something like time locked capital or, you know, uh, what's the, what's the uh, time weighted notional, for example, in the IPOR protocol? Uh, you know, what is uh, what's the current? liability or what what kind of uh, notional derivatives are currently currently being underwritten and for how long and this is something that you can easily just build a screener for and it, and again it should be standard if we go back to the collapse of celsius um people got emails uh, they got emails that said you know they couldn't access their assets but it was really a black box right you have a lot of people that were doing uh, basically on-chain uh screening trying to figure out which are the deposit addresses which are the uh, withdrawal assets but one of the only kind of data points that we had into celsius was them repaying their ave v2 debt and so this was the one kind of clear data point that the entire world had to check at least a portion of the solvency uh, of celsius uh, if we get into the uh, you know the asset liability mismatch in in three hours three hours was really levering up on this uh, you know gbtc uh, kind of loop right uh, and it all broke down you know for a number of different reasons but for example if you had this uh, this screener you could see you know where where were the losses in terra where were the losses uh, you know in their staked eth uh, you know essentially uh, getting their their bond portfolio cut where were all the asset liability mismatches so I mean, we have we have this uh, really open framework, and I think that we should really use it. You know, if you think of something like uh, the liquidity pool and the IP tokens, IP tokens are like a real-time nav calculation. So if you take like a fund structure, mm. you can look in real time and calculate in real time what's 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 the nav of a fund. You know, so you know typically this is done over spreadsheets. It's, uh, you know, it's being audited by, uh, you know, a big four firm. You get this nice stamp of approval, but, you know, we just trust the blockchain. But the black boxness of many of these things and that that is dangerous for people, you know, I think that's a great point. Uh, and this should be standardized, right? How great would it be if more DeFi protocols adopted this? And it also means you'll get more intelligent users who maybe don't just look at the APY but ask themselves, how, how has this gotten, right? Or when something's launching, uh, how sustainable is this going to be, right? If you're promised a uh, 100% of day one, like how's that going to look a month from now? Cool. So yeah. um, maybe you could talk about what's happening under the hood. So the money is being managed, right? That is in the pools. Um, and uh, you have a, a contract that handles that. Could you walk the user through kind of the, the operations there? and uh, the different strategies that it can deploy on? Yeah, I can I can go with that. <clears throat> so, I mean, uh, at Typeport, we, we are always trying, you know, to get like the, the highest risk, risk adjusted returns. Yes, this is this is why also the strategies that we are deploying money uh, to are very limited only to the constituents of the of the IPOR, uh, of the IPOR index. So this is like the, the credit markets that we all know, like the other the compound maker uh maker DAO, uh, the dsr rate obviously uh in terms of like the how the asset manager chooses uh where to deploy the money so as soon as somebody supplies basically uh pro provides capital to the to the imm pool uh the asset manager is going to uh check whether uh, you know there is whether the reserves inside the pool are enough and if the reserves are enough, it is basically going to take that money and it's going to look where to deploy that money. So it's just going to loop through all of the all of the credit markets, which the data we already collect for all of them on uh, real time anyhow. So it will just loop through all of them. It will see where the uh, where the rate is the highest. It will also calculate what the rate is going to be after the assets are deployed, because actually we have been in situations where for example, when the when the asset manager is moving money, and you would expect that the money are going to be deployed one place, but at the end, like they they get deployed somewhere else. Why? Because basically the asset manager calculated that after the deployment of the money, the rate is not going to be better than, for example, on the on the DSR. 
we had that with uh, with Dai, uh, the DSR rate, and and Aave uh, markets, and and it, this is this is really straightforward. Yeah, so we don't have people there, like for example, in aggregators, like strategists that are going to sit there and click buttons and be like, oh, let's move money from here to there, and everything is out automated, and the user at all points in time is the only owner of of the funds which are inside the asset manager, and there is like a basically a guardian angel mechanics, which uh, if there is something which is happening on the credit markets, uh, basically we can we can utilize that where all of the money from the asset manager are going to be recalled and they're just going to be held inside the MM pool. So, uh, you know, uh, that's it. They cannot be moved anywhere. Nothing can be done with them. It's just like, okay, we want to recall uh, uh, the AMM pool, which is basically the owner of, of that money uh, in that situation, is just recalling everything back, back to it. Yes. And the people that have IP tokens, uh, obviously, you know, they have the ownership of the share of, of the AMM pool. So that's really how and, it works. And is there um, a division between money markets or will it often just pursue the best one? at any point in time? Like, how are you fragmenting your, your risk, like limiting it per strategy? It will pursue the best one. It will pursue the best one. So it will always deploy and it will always withdraw. It will deploy to the highest rate and it will always withdraw from the lowest uh, rate. And this has by itself, you know, when, when I put it big enough, this by itself is going to have like a arbing uh, power on the credit markets because by the IPOR asset manager just moving moving money, uh, depositing and withdrawing is, is going to bring like the credit markets in balance because it always is going to choose and will deposit at the highest one uh, where it will basically reduce the rate and make it more in line with the rest of the credit markets. Uh, that's think, awesome. That's an awesome dynamic to highlight. Yeah. Uh, and how, how does the EDSR affect this? And so for the users, by the way, so this is the die savings rate where uh, Maker kicks back some of their fee earnings to depositors and to increase the demand for DAI, even though much of it is illiquid. And you have implemented that in your strategies, right, for, for DAI. Uh, how, how is this mixed in? Uh, so, uh, I mean, this is just one of one of the strategies. So back back when we when we launched it, we basically launched on the first week when, ED, when uh, the EDSR rate became available, when it was 8%. Uh, we, we launched the strategy extremely fast. Uh, I, I think that within, within one week, we, we basically created created the concept and and then uh, built the contracts, audited the contracts. And yeah, we started Tuesday and on Monday we were live uh, with the EDSR. I think we were one of the first protocols that integrated it right after the uh, after they made the change to 8%. So back then, obviously, majority of the of the die was just going directly to the EDSR. But these days when the rate of EDSR is like 5%, I would say that Sometimes you know there is uh, there is money deployed into Aven compound simply because you know so much liquidity have left those credit markets uh, in the past couple of months that now you know die rates on those credit markets are quite volatile. So sometimes you can actually get better rates on the credit markets for short periods of time, but you can get better rates than you are going to get on the DSR. And again, yeah, the good thing is that all of this is like completely trustless. Uh, the, the asset manager is, is fully, uh, you know, everything can be seen in, in the code. There is nobody with manual interference into this. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things about the EDSR, so the EDSR is falling under this kind of bigger macro shift, not only in TradFi, but in DeFi. You know, so Maker basically, you know, they raised the, the DSR rate up. Uh, to try to attract liquidity. But what they were doing is they were floating it essentially to the treasury rate, which brings in some parity in DeFi, which we've been missing, right? So, uh, you know, over the last two years where we've gotten these rate hikes, the capital and the rates in DeFi have been really static. Uh, and I think that this is, this, this is problematic. We're now seeing a late shift in exit of stablecoins stablecoin liquidity inside for uh, for treasury yields uh and it's a shame in my opinion you know that this has happened but it's also because DeFi has been very slow to adapt uh so one thing when we say about the ipor rate is the ipor rate it doesn't set the rate in DeFi; it reflects it it's like a thermo thermometer that's telling you what's the temperature of the credit markets across various protocols 
And while the rates were hiking, you know, uh, in DeFi, we dropped down from 10% to 3% to 1.5%, right? And now we're sitting in the maybe 3 to 4% range, but only because we have kind of these late coming adjustments. So the DSR should probably shift. And we already see this happening with Avian Compound looking to change uh, the slope uh, of their utilization curve and essentially reset the, the interest rates inside of DeFi. And so this will probably move us into a new rate regime. Uh, one, I think that's really important because essentially we're getting subpar returns in DeFi. Well, for the past two years, we have been getting subpar returns uh, and taking on smart contract risk. So what this should do is it should have some at least capital that is, remains captive uh, inside of DeFi. It has, a more, uh, it has a more interesting rate dynamic. There's also a number of things that are happening because these kind of older DeFi protocols have been slow to adapt that are really pushing uh, on the rate mechanics. So, you know, if we look at what was, uh, let's take this kind of big issue uh, with the, uh, you know, with the curve debt and the potential, you know, bad debt in Aave. That was one situation, for example, where the IPOR asset management, it repealed money from the money markets and removed it into the AMM to keep it safe, right? And so this is one action where, you know, the DAO is trying to be very reactive to things that are happening in the market. Uh, but, you know, in that we saw that, for example, there were different kind of uh, categories of debt where, for example, the, the FRAX debt had to be repaid first. It became essentially the, uh, you know, the senior tranche uh, because it had a different interest rate dynamic. Right. And so that mechanism should really push a lot of the other older protocols to be more adaptive to the rates. Uh, you also have other protocols that have more kind of market dynamic rates. Uh, so I know there's an infinity protocol that's trying to look to do this. You obviously have, uh, you know, Ajna protocol, which is looking to do this. Uh, you know, we know some of the uh, the different uh, players are also experimenting with their own rate markets. Uh, you have a couple actually that we just met in Singapore, which is term structure and term finance, uh, which are doing uh, essentially auctions for fixed income markets, right? So they're looking at kind of long-term fixed rates. And so all of these guys are looking at rates in a different way and a different mechanism than the simple utilization curve. And this is something that we sorely, sorely need in DeFi for price discovery. It's also, you know, something that really underpins the IPOR, which means that, you know, the IPOR should allow this kind of arbitrage between the different markets because you'll have different rate dynamics between these different markets. And then again, you know, the, the IPOR is kind of like a thermometer. Uh, and the other part about that is that we have, we know in, in, in the last year, a lot of people have been talking about the, the ETH staking rate as the de facto risk-free rate, you know, in, in DeFi. I consider it kind of more monetary policy. You know, it's essentially the, you know, the capital and float that you have in the ecosystem. And then the risk-free rate is more kind of on the, uh, on, on the money market rates, right? But these two have a strong correlation. So you have a lot of people that in the, on the institutional side that were looking to really focus on this institutionalized, um, you know, staked ETH index. Um, we saw one called uh, Market Vector, which is working with digital asset research. We have the CESR, which is CoinDesk Indices and, and CoinFund, but they're really going kind of the Web2 route. They're, they're trying to calculate everything off chain. They're trying to sell it through traditional channels where IPOR is really going kind of DeFi native. So on the other side, the money market rate becomes extremely important because you're talking about this yield curve in DeFi. So, you know, a lot of the people that we talked about right now, they're talking about yield curve in DeFi, yield curve in DeFi, yield curve in DeFi. But this is the drum that we've been beating and actually been delivering on for the past two years. So having this historical IPOR rate, having it on chain and actually bootstrapping this yield curve in DeFi, uh, I think that the protocol its mission is really solidified by seeing these other players come in and, and you know, not only validate it, but uh, try to enter as competition. And then also those different markets can be rate inputs for, you know, the IPOR one month rate, the IPOR three month rate, you know, essentially bootstrapping this, this, uh, this yield curve, not only by the accrued IPOR, but by the fixed income markets, by the futures, by the bond stripping markets. Uh, and so we're really seeing a really interesting evolution 
of the moving pieces inside the rates market, even though DeFi credit activity is at a very low state. So you see a lot of innovation on the space. And, you know, I think that we're very well at the forefront to capture, uh, to capitalize on this. And there's a lot of interest moving into this because they're actually realizing, you know, the power of the space. Yeah, this is a very thoughtful rundown. And I think that there are a few things to unpack here now that you touched on the real yield, the monetary policy that we have here, and also the real world assets. So let's start from small and then we can go even more deep here. So first of all, what do you think of bond wrappers within DeFi? And also, secondly, now that we have all those off ramps through Circle, through Tether that are going to chase real world yield in TradFi, not within DeFi, why would someone stay in DeFi now that you don't have any kind of uh, other yield higher than or safer, higher and safer, because this is important to mention, than the real world that you're getting uh, from the money markets, you know, offside crypto. So why, why would you stay here? I mean, it's a good question, you know, and I, I would say that actually currently, or at least for the last year, there hasn't been a very good answer. And also money has been quite cap uh, captive, showing that it's not efficient, getting subpar DeFi yields uh, and taking on huge smart contract risk. Right. Uh, and the other, you know, uh, looking at, you know, MakerDAO, which is really the pioneer in decentralized finance, you know, it's a bit crazy that they're going, it's really a wrapper on, on, on treasuries. Right. So maybe it's at the forefront of this RWA kind of boom. Um, I also agree. Think agree. Yeah, t totally. And that, ma that makes it credible. You know, they're gradually going that route, little less USDC dependence, more, more real world assets. Um, yeah. So sorry, back to you, but just want to, want to echo. I agree. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you read the, the V2 blog post that I, I, I put out a couple weeks ago, uh, it was talking about, I think that what we're doing right now is really short sighted and kind of reactionary, right? All of this view on real world assets, on treasuries, we're looking at it and we're adjusting uh, maybe a year too late, uh, but it's putting in critical infrastructure. Okay, so let's, let's, let's do a basic uh, kind of scenario that's a potential, right? Let's say mid next year, uh, the market is pricing in the start of rate cuts. Uh, and that's just a couple months after the happening. So what happens if we go on this kind of risk on rally? And what happens if we get essentially more risk taking inside of DeFi? You're going to have a lot of people, more people borrowing against their assets again, right? So we have this uh, kind of outflow of stable coins very kind of late into RWA or, or, or T-bills. Um, what happens when that flow is reversed, right? Uh, so people are actually going to want to be able to borrow against their treasuries and get access to DeFi. So if we have this kind of rate reinversion, all of these infrastructure pieces are going to be extremely important, but in the opposite way, right? So we'll get this uh, potential risk premium back inside of DeFi where it should be. Uh, and you'll need a way actually to bridge between these two worlds. So we talked about this kind of fixed income bridge and the idea of like visualizing uh, DeFi or or, uh, or blockchain ecosystems as kind of a city, right? The city kind of mechanism. And that's why we went with this kind of city visualization for the IPOR V2. Uh, but you have this bridge that's going between TradFi and DeFi. And, you know, we, we think it's, uh, it's really cute that these, uh, you know, tens of billions are crossing the bridge from DeFi to CeFi. We're losing, you know, kind of tens of billions in assets because they're going after uh, treasury bill yield. But we should really be thinking about the hundreds of trillions that could cross the bridge the other way. Uh, and where we envision IPOR in this is it's really a, uh, let's call it a cycle agnostic yield bridge where you should be able to borrow, uh, you know, lend on one side and borrow on the other to capture this arbitrage, you can use the IPOR, you know, both as a way to visualize, you know, what are the trends, 
you know, what's the inversion of the rates? What's the uh, overlay of the IPOR rates and, and treasury bills and so forth? But also use the instruments to be able to, for example, leverage loop. Uh, you know, right now, borrow cheap DeFi and loan and uh, lend in treasury bills. But when the yield is reversed, you know, be able to reverse the flow. And so that's what I think is really exciting. That's uh, kind of where I think we're well positioned. And that's more of the market cycle that I'm, you know, kind of interested in. And do you think that we have a lag right now in this narrative in which we we're seeing the top of the treasury rates? And if that's the case, like you mentioned, you know, with the halving, we will see high demand for Bitcoin, high demand on chain for ETH with funding rates being probably at over 10%. So all the real world assetization, it doesn't make much more sense for a narrative in the next three to four years, right? Well, I mean, you know, if you want to actually get access to the safe yield, but also borrow against it to make it productive, right? You can still borrow uh, or essentially get your T-bill yield and then uh, borrow against it inside of DeFi to seek this higher yield, right? So this is uh, this is still potentially an arbitrage opportunity going the other way. And this is what I think is actually maybe most interesting, uh, you know, for looking the next uh, next couple of years into the future. Yeah, especially with this dynamic that's going to play or potentially might play out that, that you sketched. Um... And you guys are also adding more utility in terms of what, what can happen on IPOR in the near future. Um, and we wanted to talk about that as well. So at the moment, you um, have trading based on the money market rates, right? Um, but you are about to introduce some new things with E2. Maybe you could talk about them. Uh, what, what are you most excited about? And we know that there's a tranched release happening. So maybe let's talk about some of these uh, step by step. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I guess like until now, you know, for for V1, what we really focused was to to bring like the best the best the best risk adjusted yield for stable coins. So really, when we started building, it was like okay for any retail participant in DeFi that that has some stable coins, we want to create a place where where those stable coins can actually earn competitive yields without you needing to really worry of like, oh, is something happening with this credit market? Is something happening with this credit market? Is my money safe? Yes, because this is basically the responsibility that kind of like the protocol assumes that it's going to be constantly monitoring what's happening on, on the different credit markets. Also, like, you know, monitoring different proposals, governance proposals, like long tail risks and, and so on. So we kind of like take take this burden away away from the away from the users and i mean our our dipo actually for one year have been outperforming uh, absolutely everything in the space as it has been like the number one uh, real yield earning pool since we have launched and that was pre uh, you know the 5% dsr rate this was when basically you could have uh, get like a 2% or 1.8% lending die on the credit markets our dipo was is basically an averaging like a six percent return, uh, just purely on on that. And and now with V two, uh, obviously, like I think that Ethereum as a, as an asset, uh, you know, has been obviously has been growing a lot. Uh, but I I also think that we are at the point where we can we can see like much more demand from from Ethereum from Ethereum miners, and especially with the coming of like restaking, where you being able to predict the rate of, of Ethereum returns of staked of staked Ethereum. Uh, first, the market is so big. And, and, and second, for the majority of players, this is going to be like massive utility, not being able only to predict the rate, but obviously to hedge against its movement. Uh, so I think that maybe, you know, a couple of months or half a year ago, it was still a little bit too early. And, you know, the LSD fine narrative came out, but majority of the time it was just, People putting Ethereum into into Lido and be like, yeah, I mean, LSD Fi right now earning like uh, four or five percent on Lido. So all of that is is there, and uh, all of that is going to be uh, in IPOR V2. But I think like trading that that Lido rate uh, right now with everything that we are expecting to happen around like uh, restaking with Eigen Layer and so on is is just uh, going to be a game changer in the space. Could you talk about some ways you imagine that that's going to be used? 
um, mostly for you know mostly for people that are going to be running those uh, node operators on the different on the different like LSD uh, protocols. Yes, yeah? so not only Lido, but then there you have like Frax, then then you have Swell. Obviously, you have like Rocket Eat, and each one really tackles the the problem with like okay. How are we? How are we going to scale up? How are we going to attract more people? Where are we going to get the killing from? And you know, protocols like Frax are even going down the road of like, oh, you know, as a node operator, you are actually going to go there and you are going to borrow uh, from basically what is like a credit market. Yes, you are going to borrow from users. You are going to use that Ethereum so you can uh, you can operate uh, the basically you can operate the nodes and, and earn the, the the frax yield, uh, and you're going to uh, kick back. Uh, obviously, you're going to pay back to the users, and and then you're going to to keep something for for yourself. So, like the mining, the mining business, whether it's like whether it was proof of work before or how it is like proof of stake on Ethereum. I think that market for 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 trading and hedging is is just getting started on Ethereum proof of stake. Yes, we have had it for years. You know, with financing of miners of proof of work, and that has always been like a very big market. But to be honest, a little bit out of reach of the of the typical DeFi DeFi user, uh, simply because you know mining as a, as a business is a very complex, and it's like much more typical to you know normal Web two type of type of business operations than than really like crypto. Uh, but now with with POS, we have that like natively, natively crypto for crypto people. And yeah, this will only get going. And it should play into the increased decentralization of the, the node operation too, right? Like this is a dynamic that will make it more accessible even for the average person in, in the long term. Oh, um, I think that, you know, for the decentralization of, of the nodes, I mean, there are definitely like a lot of talks right now about this you know with lido having like such a such a big share and you know some other protocols trying to like impose them to basically cap their 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 market size uh i i personally am on the opinion that you know we have seen that before with bitcoin pools uh and also with ethereum mining pools where you have had like the entire you know the entire chain is basically four different pools but we should not forget that those are not entities. Yes, like those are those are like tens or, or hundreds of thousands of, of individual node operators that are just pooling together. I mean, back then into into a Bitcoin or Ethereum pool. Now, in the case of of Lido, you know, the the amount of operators is definitely like much much lower. But still, uh, Lido is not like one entity. It's thirty different entities and. Each of them only represents like a small percentage of the of the overall uh, Lido, uh, you know, mining power. Yes. So I I I personally am in the camp that I don't really perceive this as that big of a risk. For me, it's much bigger risk if we allow you know um, a centralized exchange like let's say Coinbase to become a majority uh, market uh, market share. Yes, I, I see this much more risky or, or some other traditional company basically coming into the space and, and starting to, starting running this as a business and, and obtaining like a massive market share. This is much more frightening for me than to argue whether Lido should increase. Yeah, but, but those companies have more access to fixed rate debt, I guess, than you would right now on chain. So that, that that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, uh, Yes, that's that's true. They they do, and we do not have uh, in crypto. Uh, I mean, we are we are still, you know, it has been like a couple of years. Like those, uh, you know, credit markets in general have been operating. People have been building like fixed rate protocols for a couple of years. But I would say, um, you know, it's not like the technology is not there. It's not like you know the innovation is is not there. Certain things just just need time to mature. You know, slowly everything is moving in the same direction. People are recognizing the inefficiencies. You know, even even Aave, the dinosaurs of, of, of credit markets out there are are coming out with proposals for like PID controllers and being able to manipulate the curve based on okay, what is the most optimal 
you know, scenario that we want other in, and then if this optimization is being kept or above for a certain period of time, we are going to like uh, automatically, you know, change the curve, increase the increase the rates, and try like a little bit more proactive approach to to uh, to price discovery for for debt. Uh, and also, you know, since I don't think that we should focus that much on those problems right now because like at the what I would call the depth of the bear market of DeFi, you know, obviously you can see problems everywhere. Yeah, and like you can point at so many things and say, well, this, this is a problem, UX is a problem, wallets is a problem, this is a problem, that's a problem. But we also have to, you know, keep in mind that we have been operating like DeFi for how long now like six we have like six years history in DeFi with with some protocols that you know have have been working flawlessly uh 24 7 365 days per year and without like any major failures and and for really for a space which is like as complex as ours to to achieve this is is already like a, a massive massive celebration you know i think that we have proven what what DeFi can do and I don't think that we are far away from being able to provide, you know, all of the required infrastructure in order to be able to onboard uh, billions, trillions, which can be coming our way. I mean, one of the first points is that you mentioned that uh, Ave and Compound, you know, being here for over five years, they're like dinosaurs. I'm curious, where is Iper going to be as a dinosaur with the slow release that you're doing right now? And what's the actual end game and, you know, pun intended from AkerDAO for Iper V2 and even maybe what's next after Iper V2? It's it's unfortunate that uh, MakerDAO has um, kind of monopolized the middle game and in game because it's, it's, it's a very nice kind of, uh, uh, you know, I was trying to write one of the content pieces and that really took away some of the, uh, some of the uh, wordplay, you know, but I think maybe the middle, you know, the middle game is where the strategy really comes out, where you start developing uh, kind of your pieces, where you start developing, you know, like, uh, like in, in chess, it's you're developing your, your position. Um, you know, I'm a poker player, so it's, uh, you know, it's kind of this uh, bankroll management and uh, it's really where, uh, you know, the, the big things happen. So, uh, you know, kind of this middle game for us is, well, there, there's a lot of upgrades uh, on the V2 that were that were really needed uh, that we found in, in the V1. Uh, some things that we actually started adopting, uh, you know, because the, actually, the, the, you know, the state of the art on the tech side is very different now than when we started. So we were able to take some, for example, like uh, inspirations on on the architecture side, uh, you know, but what we're really doing is we're playing around uh, with and tweaking with, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, kind of primitives, you know, that we started on. Uh, we're improving upon them. We're abstracting that actually on the end user side. So from a messaging standpoint, we're really just focusing on what the end user wants. Uh, and then on top of that, it's building the structured product suite. Uh, so I like to use the analogy of a car, you know, in crypto, uh, you know, we're the salespeople that someone walks in, we tell them about the exhaust manifold, we tell them about the alloy on the tires, you know, the the, the pressure, you know, what's the, uh, you know, what, what even where the fibers on the seat come from, but nobody really cares about that. They want to, they want you to get in and drive. They want it in red. They want, what's the fuel efficiency and you know, how fast does it go to 100? Those are the important things. And we're talking about the the, the wrong things, right? Uh, so what we want to really do in the V2 is start building the car, building the car experience so someone can just get in and drive. There is a lot of complexity on the protocol level. Uh, the index, actually how how it behaves, uh, you know, do does it need to be the spot index? Does it need to go to a kind of moving average? How do you start syncing, you know, block tempos across different, uh, you know, different blockchains in case it starts inputting rates from, you know, let's say, you know, roll up X or, you know, uh, you know, um, chain Z, right? 
so there are a lot of different engineering considerations. You know, what we're working a lot now on is the demand-driven spread, the risk oracle, and managing drop, uh, you know, max drawdown for the pool. But this is not, I wouldn't call it basic, it's fundamental financial engineering that keeps the motor running, right? But again, this is talking about all the pieces that make the car run. But someone just wants the damn car. They want to get in and drive and go somewhere. You know, so the next stage after, you know, we launched this V2 is actually building the, the structured products on top of it, not just the iPOR labs team, uh, but also starting to, uh, you know, kind of structure the DAO. So it gives incentives to other builders to start building on top of it, you know, whether it be like, a, you know, a secondary mechanism, like, uh, you know, someone wants to build like a convex for power tokens, for example. Uh, or other derivatives on top of the IPOR index. You know, so a couple, I think a month ago, we announced a collaboration with Diva Protocol. These guys are good at pricing options, you know, across any data set, and they're going to start pricing options off of the IPOR rates. So, you know, what are the new derivatives that will be offered on IPOR? Uh, can we offer this IPOR index and also the yield curve to these fixed income markets, right? So that they can start building on top of that and then wrap, you know, these kind of primary, uh, these primary instruments uh, and the swaps to create simple structured products, right? Uh, you know, like let's let's think of a vault. Uh, um, there's a couple of people that are doing like uh, tokenizing, um, uh, you know, like corporate paper, you know, or just, uh, you know, uh, simple, simple debt instruments. Uh, and, you know, let's say if you can, uh, you know, if you can borrow uh, USDC, you know, at 4% fixed and you can actually leverage loop against that and you have some ETH or maybe you can, uh, you know, actually build a, a fairly simple uh, product on top of that where you receive fixed ETH, you take a put on the ETH to manage your downside risk. Uh, you borrow that, you lever it up as, a, you know, let's say this kind of four times leverage looping. Uh, on the money markets, you take a pay fixed and you effectively have, uh, you know, your position hedged on the credit side. And then you lend that out, uh, you know, into uh, into this uh, kind of like, let's call it a, you know, like a five and 10 or a five, you know, five to 12 percent, uh, you know, spread, uh, you know, in, in this uh, in southern debt market. And, you know, it's, it's quite a nice return. Uh, and so what we don't want the user to do is to have to do all the legs of that trade themselves. We but want to, to build yeah. one option where they can actually hold this, they can hold this risk, but they can capitalize on this opportunity for three months, six months, one year. You know, we really have to start building it out, you know, uh, you know, in, in kind of shorter, shorter tenors, but, and match them up and align them with the, with the instruments. But, you know, that's a really nice, simple product that, can offer nice risk adjusted yield and can all be done, uh, you know, on chain. And then, you know, we joke often internally that, you know, it's, you know, it's just a simple button click, but that's the kind of uh, thing that we want to do. So part of that required the upgrade of the architecture, you know, part of that required a, you know, upgrade of the risk engine, and then also building out these relationships with other protocol providers, with other, you know, kind of RWA, protocols uh, with, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, like Ethereum stake rate native, like ETH, uh, you know, uh, Lido stake ETH, Rocket Pool, um, and actually starting to build out these uh, kind of multi-call contracts that will allow for this nice product, but again, you know, give the car to the user, uh, you know, let them uh, kind of pick uh, the risk profile that they want to take. Uh, the this actually the smart con you know a set of smart contract risks that they're comfortable with and go after that you know really nice risk adjusted yield. I think people want that the very simple uh, products that you just described you know click a button lock in a, a borrow for X amount for this duration and maybe do something with that borrowed money uh, I I think is great and the DSR launch and how quickly money moved into that contract of maker also showed me at least that. You know, even in this state of DeFi, people are willing to act, you know, when there's interesting stuff. And I think that with this infrastructure, you can go super risk on, right, uh, in terms of the strategies that you deploy that, that uh, borrowed money in. Uh, but it could also be much safer things. And so I, I feel like, you know, uh, a situation where IPOR or maybe 
parties who've built on top of Iapor can offer these strategies and, and there being a portfolio, it's going to get really interesting, even for the people who don't really want to actively manage their DeFi portfolio. They just want to do more set and forget things, you know, come back in three months or in six months. Um, and here's the risk profile I'm comfortable with. That's exactly it. You know, IPOR is is really categorizing what is the risk-free rate of return in DeFi. Anything on top of that should be considered kind of risk-adjusted. And then you, um, uh, I mean, you you know, it's basic game theory. You're you're defining your counterparty risk. You know, what's the, what's the possibility that this goes to zero? And uh, you know, what kind of uh, multiples do you need? You know, to basically justify this risk. But IPOR as a protocol, it's not the IPOR protocol's job to create the risk profiles. It's to provide the underlying tools so that other builders can package them together, use the different primitives and, and build. So that's that's kind of, I think, the uh, the place in the market. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what people will do uh, in the next cycle. You know, um, like we say, we're at pretty... Uh, maybe, uh, you know, like in, in, in DeFi winter, uh, crypto winter that's been kind of long, cold, and it's now quite boring. But, you know, this is when, you know, the the overnight success of the foundation pieces are, are built. Yeah, the builders still here, right? Making this essential infrastructure. You guys are going to lay that, I think, for when the situation changes. Uh, things can turn really quickly in, in this space. So now that we know what Iper V2 aims to address, what would you say? And, you know, we have what Iper V2 aims to address. We also talk about the current narratives and where DeFi could be in the next five years. What would you say is the number one thing that Iper V2 is positioned to address given the current market that we are now in? And let's assume that, you know, the bear market continues for another year. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Uh, I mean, to be honest, there are there are only that many things that you can build really independently in a vacuum when you are a protocol like IPOR. So for me, always like IPOR first is like an yield protocol. Yes, you put your money in IPOR because you want to get like above, above the average rates. You want to get them in the most safe manner and you want to spare yourself the headache. And from that point on, is like what what IPOR additionally allows you to do with with the money that you put inside. Yes, yeah? so not only like earning those like industry leading yields, but like okay, can you borrow against that money? Can you borrow at a fixed rate against that money? Can you actually go and arbitrage credit markets with the money that you already have in the IPOR system? So for me, you know, we right now have like a, a like two yeah main like heavily parameterized. Uh, protocols like Aave and Compound, where you know people literally cannot cannot go there and and even try to follow like the complexity of those credit markets. Yes, so for the majority of the time, they just trust what is what is happening on on those credit markets, and they assume the risk, uh, which is connected to like all of those parameters that are going to be decided by firms like Gauntlet and and so on. But now we see like a shift where you know there are those like new like market credit market primitives like ajna like like morpho blue like term structure infinity exchange where they they go completely in the different direction where where it's like okay we are not going to have like that giant protocol with like a thousand parameters inside that somebody has to monitor but we are going to make it that every person is going to take their own uh, they are going to measure their own risk they're going to set up their own parameters for like what they're willing to do and and then assume all of the risk of of what they have chosen as a set of parameters there and oracles and so on and i think that this is very nice to have it as a primitive but i don't think that this is going to be really widely widely used by 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 retail people what people will wait for is for certain operators like like Gauntlet, like iPod, like other like Block Analytica to go there and start like operating pools on, on those credit markets and be like, hey guys, depositing to here, we have set here the params for that specific pool. Just give it to us and we're going to basically essentially get you 
the best rate with the with the least amount of risk or we have another pool which is going to give you you know a little bit higher risk a little bit higher return so we have like a digen pool where we are going to chase to be chasing like the wildest thing out there and just try to get you like the highest yield possible uh, so right now this cannot be achieved on on like the monolith structures that are that are like aven compound yes because you have a set of parameters and they apply to everything but with those new credit markets this can be achieved and what i think there is like where ipor is basically going to play that role of like you you are just aggregating money money flows through you and kind of like exactly like an investment bank yes you go there with with money you want to put money or you want to borrow money what the bank is going to do in order to service you after that and how they are going to create like the best value is is up to them yes you as a user uh, you as an end user you do not really you do not really care about this now the good thing in defi is that all of this is not only transparent but actually defi like by default shares that with its users yes like majority of the protocols are fighting for market share rather than fighting you know for who can charge you more yes so i think that this is going to provide like massive value to users it's also going to make it much safer and it's at the end it's just going to attract more more capital into the space because you know even before from something like 120 130 billion of stable coins in total issues we had something like 2 billion that were in defi yes i mean i'm i'm excluding i'm excluding things like you know trading on centralized exchanges and so on the actual amount of of stable coins for example that was circulating in defi was was just like less than uh 1 2% of the overall issuance we need to get more people to actually participate and find value in defi and defi pays you know if if anything defi likes to pay when when you bring service there as when you bring liquidity when you bring money and you are willing to take some risk it's very and, generous and and then soon with uh with the rollout of v2 you'll have trading of the staking rate you're going to have longer term structure right for your swaps and they're going to be better priced so i think that's really exciting and then still you guys have top notch yield um right which is real and some ipor tokens on top so i feel like there are many reasons for people to continue checking out what you're doing um and uh i i think we are going to have an exciting year yeah yep and uh just just to just to get back very very fast on a point that you were making like why would you stay in defi in, uh if you can be earning 5% outside is because we have protocols in defi that have really proven longevity and majority of those protocols are also running incentives and you can you can get a, get a share of them by basically providing liquidity to, the, to those protocols so like not only to look at the real world portion which is you know equal yes but then you're also obtaining that that future share and potential uh in in those protocols that he, that have proven proven that they have like staying power so that's a good reason you know not to go out and and search for those like bond yields right now but actually look around in like what currently is being like underpriced underused and and like just uh where the gems are opportunity still here you you don't you don't just get into defi and find the best yields in in the bull market right you are positioned and prepared and then you can capitalize on it that's that's a thing like if for example if you're an arbitrage trader uh you know anytime an arbitrage opportunity exists like for example like the the kimchi premium right who who can uh, who can capitalize on that it's only people who are set up you know in off offshore outside of korea and can cycle money from korea for example right so it's people that are already uh positioned and prepared to take advantage of an opportunity so uh you know if you're looking at this in defi it's the people that are understanding what are the protocols what are the risks uh you know what are the opportunities that i can take in the next uh, in the next cycle that will be well well prepared and, and positioned to take advantage of it otherwise you know uh you have the same people that are uh you know always uh let's say naysayers like uh, if 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 crypto is low I said I told you so if it's high say it will come down and when it comes down I say I told you so you know there's uh 
you know, if you sit on the sidelines, you'll you'll never be in the in the right place to understand what's happening. And so that's why, uh, you know, we're kind of in, in in the trenches and building through this bear to be well positioned in the next cycle. Yeah, I think that everyone who has been here, you know, for at least a cycle has been rewarded in some way or the other. One way, you know, as we've seen back in 2020 with the first uh, DeFi summer is that people just enjoyed the game so much and playing with everything new and in interacting with smart contracts and all the on-chain, I won't call them Ponzi's, but uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun and people were being rewarded and some of them are now the builders that are now, you know, delivering the biggest DeFi primitives and some of them are, you know, in in our show right now. So I guess that this brings us to a close. Uh, it has been great. Any final remarks, Dimitar or Darren, that uh, you have? Maybe some some quick alpha drop of 10 seconds. Yeah, so I like that you pointed to fun, right? Because DeFi Summer was fun. Uh, then, you know, in the bull, everyone gets greedy and starts thinking about money, 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 and they forget about the fundamentals. So right now we focus on the fundamentals and we want to actually bring the fun back into DeFi. Great note to end on. Thank you guys so much. Uh, it's been great catching up. Thanks for tuning in to the Deus Ex Dao podcast, a place where some of the most progressive and innovative builders, thought leaders, and traders in the crypto space come together to discuss all areas of the crypto industry. Whether you're into DeFi, Layer 1s, Layer 2s, NFTs, or anything in between, we've got you covered. And as a reminder, nothing said on this podcast should be construed as financial advice or as a solicitation to buy or sell any digital asset or security. The comments, views, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests on the podcast are their own. As always, you'll need to do your own research. <laughs>